0: All right, let's, uh, let's read from the book of Esther. We started a new sermon series last week in the book of Esther. We uh, read the first eight verses, and so now we're going to continue uh, reading from uh, the rest of this chapter. Esther chapter 1, verse 9. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerash, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment. The men next to him being Karshena, Sethar, Adma, Tarshish, Marys, Marsena, and Macumen, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. He said, According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. And Mamukin said, in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, The noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she, So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. Now this advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Mamukin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household, and speak according to the language of his people. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that you have allowed to be delivered uh, to us so that we may understand you, that we may see you, uh, that we may know what you're doing. I pray that you would open our hearts and minds as we uh, read and look and think and ponder uh, this story uh, this morning. Be here. Be here by the presence of your Spirit. Amen. So this is a, this is a fascinating story, right? Um, I, enjoyed, I enjoyed reading it. It's, it's fun to get into. We've been studying a lot of non-story stuff in the Bible. It's fun to get into a story here. But this story uh, is sort of a picture into something that many of us are very familiar with. It's one of the more common sort of darknesses in, our, in human existence. We so said this series is called Esther, and then the subtitle is Finding God in the Dark. And one of the things we're looking at is different darknesses, different things that make the world around us dark. And one of the things is power and its abuse. That's what we see in this, in this chapter. You see Ahasuerus, I'm going to call him Xerxes because it's just easier to say. that Both names refer to the same person. So Xerxes here, king, uh, is an example of one of the more common things that we experience, and that's the, the abuse of power, right? Their examples are aplenty, right? We just spent, I don't know, four, six, eight months last year talking about the abuse of power uh, in trying to abu- uh, impeach the President of the United States, and abuse of power was one of the most common phrases used throughout that entire process, right? We have um, more than a few powerful pastors who have fallen, and one of the main things that is point—the finger that's pointed at them is that they abuse their power. They took what power they had, and then they didn't use it uh, right. All, right we, all this pushback on racism is really a pushback against abuse of power. The Me Too movement. All the th- we, 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 every day we walk out of our houses, we read our news, we whatever, and we come across stories about the abuse of power. So it's not uncommon for us to understand and come in contact with uh, something like this. And we all know the proverb that says that power corrupts and an absolute power corrupts absolutely. So we're, we're well aware of the dangers of having and using power in ways that we that we shouldn't. And so when we come to this story, the question is, what, we, what are we supposed to learn from it? What can we learn about the abuse of power? What can we learn about power itself uh, in reading the story of Esther here in, in the first chapter? Um, and I want like, to th- we'll walk through the story a little bit, and then I want to offer two kind of ways to think about and respond to um, the abuse of power that we see here, and then what it says to us in our, in our context. So let's look first at this story and kind of walk through it a little bit. In verse—we went through verse 8, and if you remember the context last week, the author describes this crazy six-month feast, right, with golden couches and just utter decadence. Like you know, the, the Xerxes is parading his wealth and his power in front of all of his nation, all of his— Empire in order to get them to go to war with him. And so you have this, this kind of pomp and circumstance of Persia is amazing, Xerxes is amazing, this is a great place to live, you can have everything that your heart desires. And those first eight verses cover six months. And then we get to verse 9, and it says, Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the, place that be- uh, the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. So there's a new character introduced. And we know reading stories, anytime a new character is introduced, there's like a hint of, okay, well, how is this character going to be related to what what I already know about the story? So you get this hint of tension, and then in verse 10, it says, On the seventh day. Now, he gave a six-month feast for all of his kingdom, and then he gave a seven-day feast for the people in his capital, like huge citadel, like the center of the city, all the people that were there. This is the seven-day feast for all of him and the people of this town. So on the last day... Of those seven days, which capped off six months of feasting, it says, when the, king, the heart of the king was merry with wine. Okay, so I don't know what you think of when you hear that phrase, but this is not like he had a, you know, a half glass of Chardonnay. right? This guy is raging, crazy, sloppy drunk. This is the king for six months. He's been just literally drinking from the first time in the morning until night. He's totally sloshed. Like he is just crazy, out of control, uh, drunk. And he's with... It says the people who were in his presence, and then later on it says the, the men that saw his face. And if you know this story, you know that part of this, the rest of the story of Esther, the idea of coming before the face of the king was reserved for a very few select people. So this is the king and his homeboys. Like These are his people, the most powerful men in the entire kingdom of Persia. Xerxes and his, and his posse, his cohorts, his, his, the people he's in cahoots with. Uh, I heard Mike Quint say the word cahoots this morning, so I just can't not say it. He's in cahoots with these other powerful people, and they're all just, they're just crazy drunk. And they're like, you can just imagine this scene. It's just, it's chaos. And Zerch is like, hey, hey, go get, go get Vashti, bring her here. Because she's, you know, I, I, want her, I want you guys to see how beautiful she is. Now again, you read that, maybe you read the Sunday school version or heard the Sunday school version, and you think she's going to just like put on like a prom dress and just kind of walk across the stage and go back down to her feast. Well, that's... Without going into great detail, I think you can understand that's not what's happening here. Okay, he's calling the queen to him to be sexually degraded. Like there's going to be things that you cannot write in the text that you can't read in the church that you can't even read in the newspaper or in a book. Like this is this is not this is not great. Okay, he's calling his wife in to be with his pals when he's completely sloppy drunk at the end of six and a half months of partying. Okay, this is a crazy, this is a crazy situation. You see how this is developing here? He calls for her. And then verse twelve says But Queen Vashti refused to come. What's super interesting about that is it doesn't give any reason at all. Like, we don't we don't know, there's no history. We don't know what their relationship was. Like I doubt Persian marriage between an emperor and his wife was anything like what we think of marriage. But like we don't know the backstory, we don't know why, we don't know whether this had ever happened before, we know nothing. All we know is that in this particular moment in time, she she didn't come. Right? In, in, in scriptural stories, biblical stories, the authors are really, really smart. And when they leave things out, they leave them out on purpose. We tend to like want to read behind the scenes and kind of figure out and then use all of that to help us understand. But most of the time when details are left out like, why did she say no? It's because we're no, we don't need to know for the purpose of the story. So the big idea here is she says no to his ridiculous, uh, you know, Plea for her to come and be with him and his pals, and so what does Xerxes do in uh, verse twelve, verse uh, b, twelve b says, at this, the king became enraged. He became enraged. Okay, he's crazy. You, you following? You tracking with the story here? Like this guy is off his, he's off the chain. He's just crazy mad, and this is the most powerful person in the history of the world you know, to this time. He's reigning over this entire giant emperor. And so he turns to his pals and he says, go get the rest of the lawyers in here, and let's sit around and let's figure out what we're gonna do about this. This is crazy. I can't have this in my kingdom. And he starts going through, well, what it, let's, let's make a law, and you, you heard the rest of the story. Now, if you've heard this story before, or if you've been in a church before, most of the time the application's made About this passage goes something like this. Xerxes was drunk. Don't be drunk. It's bad. Or, you know, don't have a king because kings will abuse their power. Or hey, like don't have a big feast because at the end of the feast bad things will happen. You you ever heard these applications from Bible stories like this? Xerxes was bad. Don't be bad. Or maybe on the other side it's like Vashti stood up for her rights, so should you stand up for your rights. Or even in some uh, unfortunate places, you have Xerxes defied her husband. Don't defy your husband. You've had, there's churches where that is taught about the application of this passage. There's a lot of ways we can look at this passage and see the behavior of people and say, do or don't do that. And the reason we read the Bible so much like, so often like that, is because we are moralists. We love to moralize. We love to look at behavior and judge people based on what their behavior. That's what moralism is. It's judging people in the world and stories based on the behavior. And it makes us feel good, right? Like ranting about how bad somebody else is really makes us feel good. You say, I would never, I would never do that. Or you post on your social media account, somebody did this with the implied, like I would never do that. I'm not that bad. Like make you, pointing, you know, we want to get, we we build these little little like moral high ground and we like step up on top of it, and then we kind of look down at everybody else, like I'm up here. I would never be a racist, or I would never vote for that person. I would never go to that place. Like we love to like, and we, we, we navigate the world so often as moralists, just based on what we think is right and wrong and whether, where we're better than other people. It's like right now there's this huge uh, stream of, of cancel culture where like some, one person does a bad thing and then they're immediately like, we're going to unfollow them on Instagram. We're never going to listen to them again. We're going to tear their statue down. Whatever it is, one bad thing, we just cancel that person. It's like they never existed. And the reason we do that is because it gives us power. It makes us feel good, right? And, and we, we bring that baggage to this text, and we start to just dissect it, like, what should or shouldn't we do? None of us are immune to that. I actually um, was talking to one of you this week about a sermon that I gave two weeks ago from Acts chapter two. You remember this sermon where I talked about uh, meeting with one another and having dinner with one another? And one of you rightly pointed at me and said, hey, that was a really moralistic sermon. All you did was say, do, 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 and you didn't tell us how the gospel helped you do that. Like, even me up here, I'm very prone, because we are so prone to just moralizing that that's how we read the Bible. But that's not at all what this passage is about. It's not, a, it's not what it's about at all. And part of the reason we know that is because the author makes absolutely no judgments whatsoever about the people's moral decisions. He just kind of lets them be as they are. So I want to give you two perspectives on reading this text that will help us understand what it means for us, why it's even here. Why does he introduce the story of Esther by not mentioning Esther at all? I mean, most of the time you, you have a story about a character, and that main character is introduced first. But here you have a whole another story. Two perspectives that shine a light on this darkness of power that we see in this text. Here's the first one. The first one is that this text should probably be read as a comedy, not as a tragedy. We read that those ten; we get horrified. This is a terrible, horrible thing that's happening. Like There's abuse, there's abuse of power, there, there's legal, there's all kinds of bad things happening in this text, and we say, well, this is terrible. But, but notice how this happens. Verse 1 through 8, he's throwing this in, entire feast to prove how great he is. And the last day of that feast, he calls his wife, and he says, hey, come here. And she says, no. Like, the author, he wants you to smirk at that. He wants you to be like, oh, wait a minute. Xerxes, who's the king of the entire world, can't even get his wife to listen to him. Like, do you see the irony in that? Like, you expect that whatever Xerxes says is going to happen. And irony is this, like, juxtaposition of what you would expect to happen in this situation to what actually does happen, and that's it. He can't even get his wife to come and be with him, most powerful man in the world. And then you see the same exact thing happen to his powerful group of friends. Right? This is the most, this is the center of the circle. They can make anything that they want happen, and as soon as Vashi says no, they spin off into a panic. Right? You see this guy, what's it, Memukin, whatever kind of name that is? What, do you see what he says? He's like, oh my gosh, if people find out about this, my wife's not gonna listen to me. Like his, the power that he has is so frail and so fragile that one word from Vashti, and he's in a panic. He's like, "Uh, what what do I do? How do we, how do we, and he's like, we got to fix this. We got to do something to enforce our law. And there's this irony building that the people in power actually don't have as much power as they think they do. They can't even make the main thing that they want to happen, they can't even make that happen. One commentator put it this way. The blindness in Mamukin's advice, as this scene unfolds, gives it a depth of irony and humor. However, because the Bible is sacred scripture, many readers assume that it speaks only in hushed and reverent tones, and they cannot see or appreciate the ironic humor found in biblical stories. Like this, this story is kind of like home alone. Okay, like the bad guys are so dumb, and they're so ridiculous that they're, it's worth laughing at them, because they're, they're like chucking bricks and trying to go upstairs, and they're slipping over themselves and burning their hands, and all this crazy stuff is happening. That's, that's how the author in Hebrew is writing this story, so that when you hear of this abuse of power, it actually makes you laugh, because like these guys are ridiculous. <laughs> they're so ridiculous. They're, they're a bunch of idiots, because they, they can't even get their act together. And so instead of um, seeing them as... Powerful people, the text is actually painting them as people without power. People who, although the Jews may have been afraid of them, really don't know what they're doing. And that's the first lesson here, is that power is usually not what it seems. As soon as someone gets power, and this is part of the darkness of power, is as soon as you get it, it gets you. That's the corrupting influence that it has. Or maybe the other side from the way we're looking at it is when somebody gets power, it, it's going to get them. When people abuse power, it will come back to haunt them. And this story wants to highlight that and kind of paint the, the powers that be in Persia as a farce. Well, there's a psalm that speaks to that same thing. Psalm chapter 2. It says this, why do the nation's rage and the people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Xerxes and his henchmen, they're plotting. Verse four, he, God who sits in heaven, laughs and the Lord holds them in derision. This story is trying to help us see the powers of the world, the way God sees them. It shines a light into that darkness to say, this is not what you think it is. These people are not as powerful as you think they are. And when we read this, this humor, this irony that's built into the story is supposed to help diffuse our fear. So the author teaches us to make fun of the very forces that once threatened and will threaten again our existence. And thereby make us recognize their triviality as well as their power. When we read this story, one of the things that we see is that in a world of chaos where power is being abused, the people in power are not what they think they are. Now, does that sound familiar to anyone? Like, I don't care what side of the spectrum you're on politically, you're not talking about political power, you're talking about corporate power, and corporate CEOs. No matter where you find power, what do you find? You find chaos. You find confusion. You find people that are self-serving. Right? Like this, I mean, you read this passage and you look at the way that Ahasuerus responds, Xerxes responds to the pushback from his wife, and I just wonder what would happen if he had had a Twitter account. Like what would he be, like what... How much, insta- how much of his internal instability would he be presenting? And how much do we do that? How much do we see people around the world instantly responding to things that are happening? P- powerful people who are demonstrating simply by their words that they really don't have the power that they think they do. And this story is supposed to help us look out in the world and see that power and see our context and understand that chaos and be able to look at that and say, ah, I don't have to be afraid of that because that is not what... That is not what those people think it is. It sh- shines a light on that. Now, now the caveat here is that abuse is wrong, and scripture makes it really clear. We need to oppose abuse. We've talked about this before. We need to oppose abuse and injustice where we find it. But when we step back and look at the whole story and talk about how we respond to powers that be coming at us, this story is supposed to help us understand that in the, in the mind of, the, of God, in the biblical story, We don't have to be afraid of the powers that be. It's like if we could tell the story of 2020 from the other side, from like the 2025 or 2030 or 2050 view, would we, all of the things that that cause us consternation right now with the powers that be, would we be able to write them in a story like this and see that they're just, that they're ridiculous? And is there a way for us to allow this story to help us do that right here, right now? So that we don't spin out in fear, In anxiety, in anger. Gospel shaped people, people who know this story and the way this story connects with the big story and typifies the big story, it's not the only place in the Bible that makes fun of earthly powers. Gospel shaped people can laugh in the face of danger, can laugh in the face of power, because we know that that's not the end of the story. We can be calm and collected and cool when we're being pressured by power, when people, the wrong people get power, whoever the wrong people are, we can look at that and say, it's okay. It's okay. Because that power is not what what they think it is. It's not going to do for them what they think it's going to do. And if I had it, it wouldn't do for me what I think it would do for me. Earthly power is not what we need to be after. Without the gospel, you'll be unable to laugh, unable to be calm. You'll be on edge. You'll be fearful. So as you think about your response over the past four months, especially to all of these things, which are so wrapped up in in power from various places, how are you responding? Are you able to look at it and see it for what it is? Do you see it as this lapstick comedy that power often is, like in Esther? Or are you afraid? Do you fight? As As we deepen our understanding of God's story, we don't respond with fear. That's the first perspective, is this ironic humor. This story is a, it's an ironic story. The second is short, and it connects to the, to the larger part of this entire story, the point, I think, of the entire book of Esther. And it's the perspective of the author. Not the human author, but the divine author. Right? The, the human author here has hindsight. He's able to look back and see that Xerxes in the end doesn't win, and he's able to write you a story with ironic humor in it. That's, the, that's the human author. The divine author here is God. And in this, in this story, and in the context of this story, you have, you start the story about God's redeeming the Jews out of the hands of Xerxes with people that have nothing to do with the Jews, doing whatever people who have nothing who, who are not Jews do. Whatever it is the people in power do, they're doing it, and it's chaos. And you're like, why am I seeing this scene? Because this scene, and again, we have no idea why Vashti said no, but when she said no, she created a context for God to provide salvation to the Jewish people. And God is there in the midst of that. Like if you were just watching this situation without any foresight or hindsight, like if you were just right in the middle of it watching it happen, Would you, would I, would we be able to see that God was actually in the midst of those people creating a context for salvation? Probably not. And yet there he is. Do you see what, what would it do for us to imagine that that's happening in our context right now? All the things that we think are bad and chaos and crazy and nonsense— and power-hungry, and abuse? What if all of those things were part of what God is doing to create a context of salvation for his people? How would that change the way we see them, the way we're willing to see them? The same commentator says, with his one decision to display Vashti at his war council, Xerxes sets in motion a chain of events that culminates in the deliverance of God's people Fulfilling the promise of an ancient covenant made ages before in a faraway place. That's the Persian emperor doing whatever the heck he wants, playing right into the hand of God. How how might that change the way that you view our politicians and our CEOs and the other people in power around the world right now? Proverbs tells us that the heart of the king is like water in the hand of God. Moralism looks at stories like this and says, don't do that, or do do this. The gospel says, even in the worst people, God is actually present and at work, redeeming everything. Next week, we'll move into the, the rest of the story with Esther and Mordecai, and we'll see how this creates a context for everything else that happens, and why this is such an important way to start, to set up, what, what God does in Esther and Mordecai. But of course, this story terminates in Christ. Right? Because the cross actually has a comic irony of its own. This is, not, this is God on the cross. That's comic irony. That's the story written in a way that you would not expect. Right? Acts chapter 2, we talked about this last month. We walked through. I didn't dwell on this verse, but listen to this verse from Acts chapter 2. Peter, preaching to the people, says about Jesus, this man who you handed over according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of those outside the law. But God raised him up, having freed him from death because it was impossible for him to be held in its power. You, bad people, with the help of those other bad people, killed Jesus, and God was there, and he used it to redeem the entire world. Esther's just another example of the same thing, same story. So I want to challenge you this week. Look around the world when you're tempted to be afraid, to be frustrated, to panic. Go back to this first chapter and embrace the comic irony of this so that you can embrace the comic irony of what's going on out there. Because it's not what you think it is. It's not what it looks like. People, the world is a lot less powerful than they, than they think they are and that, and that we think they are if we understand that that, that context and understand that God is behind that working redemption, we can walk with calm, peace, joy, humor in the midst of a world that's completely crazy. Okay, let's be those gospel-shaped people that, that walk in the world with those lenses and that read the scriptures in a way that's better than moralism. Okay, let's do those two things as we walk through the world this week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Uh, for your grace in this story um, poured out on our hearts that uh, are so easily uh, afraid, um, that are so easily confused, that are so easily frustrated. I pray that this story would, would lift, lift us up, would build us up, teaching us that, there's, um, that you are at work and that you uh, will have the final laugh and that we can rest in that and that we can go about our lives knowing and trusting that you uh, are there and are good and are working all things together. We pray uh, this week in our hearts as we give, um, whether we give here, whether we give online, um, as you call us uh, to share our resources with one another and with this church, that we would do that uh, joyfully, uh, knowing that that all things are yours. We pray it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.